Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. And we're coming to the end of what is commonly called the Lord's Lord's Prayer. When you think of the Lord's Prayer, you think of the Our Father, correct? But really that was Jesus giving the uh, disciples a prayer that they could learn and could pray as disciples of Christ. And we know that Jesus doesn't fit all the different petitions that are in that prayer. But this is an intimate glance into the life of Jesus in His relationship as the God-man to the Father. Remembering that in eternity, Jesus was fully God. When it was determined that the time was right, the time was full for the coming of the Savior of the world, Jesus was given that assignment. He did not shed His divinity. He maintained His deity throughout His earthly life. But He surrendered control of His life in His humanity to God the Father. We have seen in our study of the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I do not say anything except what I first hear the Father saying. I do not do anything except that which I see the Father doing. So Jesus is seen here in His humanity, having fulfilled His destiny, His mission. And we are almost, I am, I'm almost embarrassed to eavesdrop on this prayer because it's intimacy between the Father and the Son of God. But He has given it to us to teach us. Last week we began to look at the various petitions of that prayer. And we determined from looking at this prayer that this is a model prayer for us just as surely as the disciples' prayer found in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke are for us. We are told by Jesus Himself in the 13th chapter of John that He has given a dis an example to us that we might follow His example. And we can follow the example of Jesus in interceding for one another. In the book of Hebrews... The Bible talks about Jesus as being one who is able to save us completely if we come through Him to God the Father because Jesus Christ actually lives to make intercession for us. He's praying for us right now. We who know Him will never be without an instant, a nanosecond, that Jesus Christ is not praying for you and me. He's always on the job, if you will. And aren't you glad He is? We saw three aspects of His praying for us last week. 
from this particular prayer. He is recorded as having prayed. And the first thing that we see is that the ingredient is that he prays for our preservation. Let's take a quick look at it. Some of you were not here, but it's good to remind ourselves of what it contains. Look at verse 11 of chapter 17. And I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. So we hear Jesus praying, keep them, preserve them. Isn't it comforting to know that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Because we have not sought to come to God through our own effort, and we recognize that there is nothing good in us outside of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And God loved us so much that He demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. What a gospel. What a great privilege. There's no word or set of words that could express our debt and hopefully our great gratitude to the Lord for who He is and what He has done for us. And He keeps us. He keeps us. Jesus says in chapter 10 of this same gospel, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. Eternal life is our birthright in Christ, having been born again by the living and abiding Word of God. That's the first petition. And we need to pray that for each other. When you think of your brothers and sisters in Christ, some of whom occupy the same house that you do, pray that the Lord will keep them for eternity. Second petition that we saw is in verse 15. Look at it. Jesus says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Who might the evil one be? Well, no secret here, Satan. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, John writes how the devil is, the evil one, is the ruler of this world. And the Lord knows that the devil is on the prowl like some roaring lion seeking some tender morsel of a follower of Christ as a meal. But good news, the Bible says that the Lord will strengthen and protect us from the evil one. And we need to pray that for one another. I wonder if anyone here, after having looked at this passage last week with us, who were here also, have applied that to your praying for other people. Praying for their protection from the evil one. The third thing that Jesus asks in this passage of Scripture, look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification is that process of salvation where we are set apart for the work of the Lord and the Lord uses us 
And He uses the Word of God to prepare us for that. We need to pray for each other for preservation, the preservation of the Lord with our lives, for protection from the evil one, and certainly for spiritual growth or as the Scripture describes it, sanctification that we might become more and more like Him. So now let's look at the passage in question today. We begin with verse 20. And we're going to look at yet another petition. Verse 20 of John 17 says this. Jesus speaking, of course, I do not ask in behalf of those alone. And the those refers to the apostles. Remember that Judas had already defected by this point. He was gone. And those in the upper room were 12 in number. Jesus and the 11 other apostles. And he's been praying for them. But notice what he says, and there's so much comfort for us here today in this next verse. We might say, oh, that was for his inner circle, those petitions. But look at verse 20. I do not ask in behalf of those alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. Are you aware that you and I, if we know Jesus Christ, we have believed in Him through the word of the apostles? Do you recall that when the church was formed on Pentecost, there were certain things which when they would gather together, either in a large group or in smaller groups, that would characterize their meetings. And right at the center of all the things that they were to do was they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. And by the way, whose teaching was that really? It was Jesus' teaching. They had sat at the feet of Christ and they had listened to Him as He taught. And the Holy Spirit had ingrained that into their souls. And therefore, they could not contain themselves. Whenever they would get together, they would come to the apostles' teaching. Now, undoubtedly, the apostles couldn't be in all the small group settings. So somebody was taking notes, probably, like some of you today are taking notes. And they were taking notes of what Jesus said. It's been suggested that Matthew, remember Matthew, the apostle? That Matthew, when you look at his work in the gospel of Matthew, he's very meticulous in the way he organizes and the way he says things. And it's possible that some of the things which he had already recorded were being circulated within the new community of Christ in Jerusalem. We don't know, that's speculation, but it's at least possible, if not even probable. But they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they weren't alone in understanding because we've already seen in the 14th chapter of this same Gospel that Jesus says, I will ask the Father, He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. How are we to be sanctified? Sanctify them by your truth, Lord. Your Word is truth. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us the Word of God. 
I'm talking about what we know as the Scripture. The Holy Spirit brought to memory all those things that Jesus had said, a miracle of miracles, and lodged them in the minds and hearts of those apostles whom He ordained to record this book for us. And when Jesus says what He says in verse 20, I want you to read it with me one more time. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in Me through their word, I remember, I believed many years ago. And really the idea of believing in, we've seen this before, but it's been a long time since I've mentioned this and we've been in this book a long time. The word believe in or the phrase is better translated literally believe into. It's not simply intellectual assent that we make to what the Bible says about God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But it's a movement of trust toward Him. It's almost like we are filings in the illustration of a magnet and we are drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we keep find, finding that drawing to Him. And so we are people who in this moment, somebody in this room probably does not yet know Jesus Christ. But you came here maybe because you've been here before and you're seeking some sort of indication as to what your purpose in life is quite simply but yet profoundly. Your purpose is to know God and not keep that knowing to yourself but to share Him with other people and be an agent just like the apostles were, an agent for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ in the way in which you live, but more than that, in the speaking of the truth of the word that the apostles gave. Verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you did send me. This is a mouthful. This is powerful. Here's the fourth petition. To pray for the unification of the church. The unity of the church. Look again at verse 22. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. Now that raises a question. What is this glory? There have been several suggestions made. I'm going to talk about the three more prominent suggestions. And glory is a many-splendored thing, so it wouldn't necessarily be just one thing. But heading the list, as we've just been talking about, would be the Word of God. That's something we've talked about. And so the Word of God gives glory to God. Isn't that true? Surely it does. But also, we've considered the name of Jesus. Look at verse 12 of this chapter 17. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. So the name of Jesus and the name of God are representative of the character 
of God and the character of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's a third probability. The Word brings glory. The nature, character of God causes God to be glorified, and He shares that glory with us. This is amazing. And here's the third probability. It's the mission that Christ gave to the apostles by association with them, we too have been given this mission. Look at verse 18. As you did send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. The last thing Christ said to His apostles and in a broader way to the disciples who were there, He said to them, I have appointed you to go and make disciples of all ethnicities. It says nations, the Great Commission, but actually the word sounds like this, ethnos, from which our word ethnic comes, or ethnicity, to all the people groups of the world. This is the mission. It's a glorious mission, isn't it? And we've just read about it in verses 20 and 21. But I'm going to share what I think is the overarching way that this glory has been given to us so that we can in turn give it to other people. A better way of saying that so that the Lord would have you and me as a conveyance of carrying this glory forward. I believe it's the Holy Spirit of God. Have you noticed as we've looked for the last three weeks at the 17th chapter of John, it's unlike the three chapters which preceded, 14, 15, 16. A prominent figure in 14 through 16 is the Holy Spirit, isn't he? And all of a sudden it's as if the Holy Spirit is just gone. Well, we know he's not gone. Jesus said, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper. That is, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, and He will be with you forever. The Holy Spirit did not leave. If we had time, we'd look all the references up, but I'll leave that to you to do in your own private time. The Spirit of God, I'm sure, is involved here. And He is the ultimate glory that comes to be part of our lives. When we come to know Jesus, the Bible says in the Romans letter, he says, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Jesus. We have to have Holy Spirit living in us. It's our receiving what Paul writes as the down payment of God in us to let us know I have saved you and the Holy Spirit's presence in you, enabling you to understand the Scripture, enabling you to know when you have stepped out of line as far as the will of God is, that you walk in the Spirit and the Holy Spirit convicts you, convinces you that you have done wrong. Holy Spirit enables us to be a witness to Christ that is an effective witness not just some words, but God uses the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And the Lord uses Holy Spirit 
uses the Word of God to move us forward. The Holy Spirit is a major part of unity in the church. There will never be unity in the church of Jesus Christ apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? Now, keep your place here and turn to the book of Ephesians from which we read earlier. Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to invite you to follow along and I'll comment as we read through this passage of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, that's speaking of the church, and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, that would be Jesus Christ. One faith, this is talking about the faith in terms of the content of the Christian gospel and the content of what the Bible would give to us is characteristic of those things which are essential for us to believe to be a church in the name of Jesus Christ. One baptism, I believe this has to do with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Someday we'll go there and consider that more fully. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Some people have latched on to that statement and have said, there, we believe what this says to mean it's about the brotherhood of all mankind. Everyone has God as his or her father. Well, that is not what the Bible teaches and that's not what Paul meant to be heard. Those to whom he wrote this had already been taught that was not the case. Remember what John says in the opening of his great gospel, but as many as received Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God. In order to become a child of God, you have to have previously not been a child of God. But as many as received Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who receive him believing in Him, receive Him, and then believe in Him. That's what true faith is. Christ comes and begins to work on our hearts, knock on our heart's door, if you will. And we sense that He's speaking to us. It's something that we have never experienced before. And then He is persistent in His coming. He never yells at us in this process, but He just keeps on knocking. And He won't let you alone because He wants you to know Him. And you have to open the door in order for Him to come in. You have to trust in Him. And so we know that when Paul writes in verse 6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, he's talking about all believers. And we'll get back to that in a moment if I remember to get us back there. 
So, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace is what we are called to make every effort to support in advance. We're to live a life worthy of the calling to become followers of Jesus Christ. And notice what will characterize that lifestyle. Humility. What is humility? I like what Fred Smith said about this. What it's not. He said humility is not denying the power that you have to be humble or do other things for that matter in the kingdom of God in service to Christ. It's not denying the power we have, but acknowledging its source. Who is the source of humility? There's not a man, woman, boy, or girl in this room who is by nature humble. We are proud by nature. I have two grandchildren. I love them to death. But they both have a problem with pride. Is there anybody here who has a child who has never exercised her or his ego in demanding what she or he wanted? Anybody? Well, I'd like to meet that child after the service. But the point being is humility is not part of who we are before we come to Jesus. But Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Listen. For I am gentle and humble in heart. To take the yoke of Christ on me and I team up with Him, is what that means, is to be a person who is not simply led by Him, but I live in His name. Remember, His name is representative of His character. And I'm to do whatever I do in His name, independence upon Him. He transforms me. He transformed you. He's in the process of continually conforming us to the will of God with our agreement that we need to grow in humility, for instance. And this is what is to characterize our pursuit of being men and women who comprise the body of Christ and gentleness. Paul flipped these words. Remember, Jesus is not only humble, He's gentle and humble. And this word, of course, outside the New Testament, contemporary with the writing of the New Testament, was a word which was used to describe a wild stallion which had been broken and still had all the horsepower that horse had prior to being broken, but whereas that horse was wild and uncontrollable, now the horse would be calm and would allow the person who sat upon its back to guide it with the bit in its mouth. That's a picture of who we are. Some of you were unrestrained before you came to Christ. You just did whatever came to your mind. You were large and in charge. Others of you were more passive. You were passive-aggressive. Everybody's got some aggression in them, 
before they come to Christ, and we see evidences of it even after we do come to Christ. But when Christ comes in and lives in us, He transfers His gentleness to us and His humility. And in order for us to participate with the Holy Spirit who produces unity, He's the author of this matter of unity in the body of Christ. And when we start tampering and we do things that go against unity, what happens is we are quenching the Holy Spirit of God. That is a serious thing to do. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul talks to the entire church and he talks about how if anyone does something to damage the body of Christ, he said, and I can see him wagging his finger at him probably, if he were there in person, he says, and beware, the Lord takes action against people who seek to destroy the church. And he meant the unity of the church in that situation. And it goes on to say, with patience, this means long-suffering. The word carries with it the idea of having the power and the right to retaliate for wrong done to yourself, but you refrain because you understand what Paul writes by Holy Spirit in Romans 12, where he says, we're to make every effort to live at peace with one another as long and as understandingly as we can. That's, by the way, one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, as is gentleness. And the next part, showing forbearance to one another in love. Some of the translations translate this, putting up with one another. Do you know, we have to put up with each other. I don't want to disturb your idealism, but look, we have to put up with each other. You have to put up with me. I don't know how you've done it for 29 years almost. It's unbelievable. And I could say, I don't know how I've done it with some of you too. I mean, I don't want you to feel alone, feel sorry for me. Hey, this is life together, isn't it? we still have vestiges of self-will. And we get out of character. Remember, we're in the name of Jesus, but sometimes we breach that, that fence of His protection around us and we get outside. But we need to put up with one another in love. And this is no ordinary love, is it? This love is selfless love looking out for the other person, not trying to look out for yourself. Look at verse 3. Being diligent. That's a work word. To preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word peace, of course, has as its background the Hebrew word shalom, which means not just the absence of conflict, but the word shalom carries with it the best that life has to offer. We are to be committed. And when we are committed to preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, you know what happens? Well, let's go back to John chapter 17. What happens when that is the case is that the Holy Spirit does, look at verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, and me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. 
Have you ever stopped to consider that the greatest tool that Holy Spirit uses to draw people to Jesus are groups of people like us, whether it's a small group in a home or a small group in one of the community groups in our church. I was talking to a brother last week and he was new to our church, been coming here about a year and a half and he's been involved in one of the home groups. We call them community groups. And he was just raving about how the Lord had helped him to grow. This is a man who is in his 60s and how the Lord has helped him to grow spiritually. He had never been associated with a church and it was God's grace to show him his way to be a part of that church. Not that church. He's a part of our church, but a part of that small group. And so the good news is that we who know Jesus, we by loving each other, putting up with one another, we are people who show the world a picture that is irrefutable in the sense, what's going on with these people? They're fake. They're putting on some sort of show. We need to get behind the scenes and see what really motivates them and in their effort to get behind the scenes and learn what really motivates us, they might come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior because we're part of a group like that. That's what God wants for us. This is the final apologetic for the Christian faith is what Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian philosopher of last century said. He wrote a little booklet on it. And it's entitled, The Mark of the Christian. It's re- you could read it in 30, 40 minutes. It's terrific. Do that if you want to and expand your understanding of this whole matter. Let me ask you now to turn back to the book of Psalms where we looked in Psalm 133. We don't have to do, time to do an in-depth look at this, but it would be wrong for us not to consider it in the discussion about preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is a Psalm of David, verse 1 of Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. I can agree to that. I can agree to that. It's beyond good. It's awesome when we dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. Now who was Aaron? Who was he? He was the first high priest. And Aaron and his successors, when they entered into the responsibility and office of high priest, there was a prescribed mixture of compounded things like myrrh and other fragrant things. And then there were 750 ounces of those kinds of compounded entities. And then in addition to that, there were five quarts of oil 
poured into it was mixed. And then when the time came from the, for the anointing, it was poured over the head of Aaron and it made its way down to his toes. Now that would not have been a concoction that would have just flowed like a glass of water or milk poured over someone's head because of the compounding effect, it would go down slowly. And that probably was for good reason because we know that was a picture of that one's being anointed. And God wanted that individual, Aaron and all of his successors, as well as those who observed the anointing, to think about what it represented. And one of the things that oil represents, the primary thing I believe, in the Bible is the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? Oil. And who is our high priest now? Jesus Christ. Read the book of Hebrews. Our high priest is one who is represented where now on earth? In the church. We are the body of Christ. Remember what we read from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, one Lord, one body. The church of Jesus Christ, we are part of the body of Christ. And it's not simply relegated to this place. Even as we're gathered here, all over this city, all over this state, all over this country, all over the world, believers are gathering as the body of Christ to worship Him. Not every group or every individual in those groups is necessarily a true follower of Christ, but we who know Jesus here today, we've gathered in His name. And oil, among other things, if you quit putting oil in your car, one of my best friends, probably my closest friend in seminary, his father died when he was about 15 years old. His name is Bob, my friend. And Bob was telling me in a moment of candor, he said, I inherited my father's car. And it was kind of a sporty car. I don't know if it was a Dodge, whatever, but I think it was a Dodge. And he said, after a while, I drove that thing for about eight or nine months and I began to see smoke come out of the engine. So I went to the mechanic and asked the mechanic what was wrong with it. And he said, son, when was the last time you changed the oil in this car? He looked at him. He, he said, I've never changed the oil. His dad didn't teach him how to change the oil in the car. And there was a fire about to erupt, a destructive thing. And the car, the engine, I don't remember, it probably was shot by that time. But the point being is oil lubricates, doesn't it? And oil reduces friction, doesn't it, in a machine. But oil in the body of Christ, the oil of the Holy Spirit, that's what assures us of having harmony in the body the Spirit of God, that is His work. Let me make some practical applications now from our consideration of the importance of unity. This unity, I'm going to tell you what it's not. It's not organizational. There is need for organization in the body of Christ. I'm not talking about this. We're an organism, not an organization. But organisms have order, do they not? They are organized. But it's spiritual in nature. It's primarily spiritual. The early church 
was alive, but loosely organized. Whenever something arose that needed attention, for instance, in the sixth chapter of Acts, the apostles appointed men who would be the forerunners of deacons to settle a dispute between two groups of widows within the new church. So there is organization, but the primary emphasis is not on organization, but on relationships and building up the body of Christ around the Word of God in fellowship and observing the Lord's Supper and praying for each other. It's not the ecumenical movement. Jesus has to be the center. Jesus has to be the center. He is the center of Christianity, as my mentor John Stott has taught me from a distance through his writings. The center of Christianity. Everything else is circumference. Jesus has to be the center. And there are many so-called Christian churches in the world that don't even believe that Jesus Christ came on the earth. It was just some made-up story. It's a myth. And there are other things I could say about that. Membership in the body of Jesus Christ is based on trusting in Jesus Christ alone through the Word of God which we got from the Holy Spirit through whom? The apostles. Thank God. Unity and diversity is what is to characterize the church, not uniformity. When you come to know Jesus, it's not the end of your identity as an individual, since it's like the father and sons. The father keeps his identity the Son keeps His. And notice how frequently we, in that passage that we read that Jesus says, I'm in you and you're in me and they're in us. Jesus wasn't confused about things. There is diversity in the Trinity, the Godhead, and there's diversity in the church. But not for the benefit of the individual who wants his or her way. Not that. We talked about that. But in order for the Lord to reach other people in the world. In the book of 1 Corinthians 12, the Bible talks about how there are many gifts in the church. Many gifts. But all those gifts work together under the headship of Jesus Christ, right? And Jesus is the one who gives us unity by the Spirit of God. Same head, brain, the brain directs cells in our bodies which are interdependent. Let me read something that was experienced at a conference on church renewal years ago in Connecticut. Judy Painter, paralyzed from the neck down, was a woman who had come all the way from Alabama she had to be transported by car. It was uncomfortable for her and difficult for those who brought her. But they were there, and she was a curiosity piece until she spoke out one evening during a discussion group. And she called out to her fellow conferees these words, I'd like everyone to look at me. I want everyone to get where you can see me. In my mind's eye, I can see myself walking and running and hiking and swimming. Even more than that, I can make my mind up to do those things. The only problem is that I cannot do them because there's a disconnect 
between my brain and my limbs. Look at me, for I am a parable of the church today. We need to evaluate our individual lives and say, Lord, if I have been part of a disconnect because I have done things my way, I have ignored the responsibility I have to the broader body of Christ. I'm an independent operator, Lord. Look, in God's economy, there is no independent operator. Do you know that? We're part of a body. And God has given us assignments. And He wants us to work together. Christ is hindered in His work where His people are divided. You've thought about the word division before. It really means two visions, doesn't it? That's why divisiveness is not God's way. God don't, does make a division between people who don't know Him and those who do know Him. And we who know Him, we should make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what's at stake in the unification of the church, the unity of the church? Well, quite bluntly, the salvation of the world. And we can do what we know we're to do based on what we read from Ephesians 4, 1 and following. We can do what we know to do to remove those obstacles to the salvation of people who are in the world that God has earmarked and He will use us as a body of believers to reach people. There is a sense in which when we come into a group, whether it's two or 200 or more, we can paint a picture of Christ by the way in which we care for each other. And the salvation of the world depends upon it. I finish with this illustration. It was reported in Life magazine. Many of us here today remember Life magazine. It may still be published. I don't know. But it was a key publication back in the 50s, 60s, even in the 70s and 80s. And one of the pictorial editorials, remember how they give these pictures in a series? And one of those pictures focused on a wheat farm in the state of Nebraska. And the first scene is a kitchen on a farm. And there's a woman whose face is streaked with tears. And her face had become dusty with wheat debris because she had been working with her husband around the farm and she lost sight of their three-year-old son. And in her busyness, she lost sight of him. And then she began to call for him and no answer. She began to look in the area around. She went into the wheat field, but the wheat field was thick and she called and she called her husband. Her husband showed up. They went together. They worked to almost dusk and then they began to call neighbors. Neighbors came with flashlights and with lanterns and they scoured the whole area all night long. When dawn came, still no child. And then they formed a circle around the farmhouse and they began to go out and look for the child. At noon that day, they found the body of this three-year-old baby. And there's a picture in this 
pictorial description of the father with the child in his arms as he comes to the house with a baby boy whom he loved and he was weeping obviously too. And as he emerged from the fields, it was reported that he said, if only we had joined hands sooner, he could have been saved. There's a message for us as the church. We need to join hands in loving each other and sharing a proper picture of who Jesus is through his church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus has prayed for our unification. And Lord, we come and we say, please help us, Lord, to be part of the solution, not part of the problem, by loving each other, putting others in our homes and in our church before ourselves. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.